Welcome, welcome to Blinded by Sports on the Candid Clark Podcast. This is the first of three episodes that will be posted on this podcast. Ahead of the Count and Shauna Victory will be later in this episode. But we start off with Blinded by Sports. I am your host, Sean Clark, and I am joined by the co-host of Blinded by Sports, the Seattle diehard fan, the Sounders especially diehard fan, Colin Fuchs. Colin, welcome. How are we doing today? What an introduction. Always, always repping my Seattle hometown pride. Uh, you know, doing fantastic. We'll obviously talk about the Seattle Sounders as we always do, um, but I'm doing Doing well, just been doing a lot of wedding planning still. We're working on it. Uh, spent a little day at Disney's Animal Kingdom and, you know, just enjoying my one of two days off. That's about all we can do when, when, we, uh, when we're busy working. Absolutely. We are about to discuss some soccer, just like we have done on the site. We are now just taking it to KJAC Spotify. Before we start, please be sure to check out thecandidclark.com for content posted every day. Colin has written some good MLS articles, and in the next week or two, he will have a Seattle Seahawks season preview, so look forward to that. Let's get into this. Lionel Messi, considered one of, if not the greatest players of all time, is leaving his youth academy club the club that he has spent his entire senior club career with, an FC Barcelona, he is looking to go. He no longer considers himself an FC Barcelona player. When Barcelona tested all their players for COVID, he did not show up because he does not consider himself a member of the team. He wrote a letter saying, I do not want to be a part of this club anymore. Colin, do you think that FC Barcelona deserves to lose Lionel Messi. Do you think Messi is in the right to leave Barcelona? That's a big question. Is he in the right? Uh, when you have played for this club, you've given everything you can to this club. You've won Champions Leagues. You've helped win the Ballon d'Or. You've obviously won La Liga multiple times. Um, I think he has personally given everything he can to this club. Obviously, he's been there for the good. We've seen them during the Ronaldinho and the Samuel Eto and the Thierry Henry days, uh, during the Jordi Alba, Xavi, um, Mark Tristeg. We've seen, we've seen plenty of bright days for Barcelona, and it's, a lot of it has been because of what Lionel Messi has been able to provide for this club since his young days of being a teenager to now being in his mid-30s and here we've seen a decline in a Barcelona club mostly because they're not really bringing through the talent that they were used to bringing in and we've seen them you know kind of just throw money at the issue similar to what we've seen with some Premier League clubs that we may dive into later uh, or maybe a club that we're about to talk to that he could be transferring to uh, I absolutely believe Messi has every right to leave Barcelona. Just as the way Ronaldo left Real Madrid, you know, he gave his time there. We obviously saw his time with Manchester United as well. Uh, but Ronaldo's going to mostly be known for his time in that Galactico white, just as Messi's going to be known as uh, his Barcelona blue. But there's just so much that he's given to this club. And 
I really don't think he can give any more except another title, another Champions League trophy. He's done everything he possibly can. He's put this team on his shoulders. The only reason they've really done as well as they have the last few years is because of what he's been able to help provide for this team. And if you're just going to continue to throw money at a situation but not provide him with the talent that he truly needs, not saying that the talent isn't there, Barcelona is not the same unit that they used to be even five years ago. Uh, this team is not the same, especially since Andreas Iniesta left. And now we see he's still playing just as well overseas in what, China? Um, there's just, there's nothing left for him. And I think he's realized that. He's realized that also the ownership group for Barcelona really doesn't seem to take a hold of their own responsibility. And we've seen that come through, especially with how they've handled the situation of him wanting to leave, of the ownership group saying that, yes, he has the right to leave, but if the clubs are willing to play, pay his release cause, uh, clause of 750 million euros, <laughs> that's a release clause that that alone just astounds me. Um, there's even a, there's been so many fans that have been so desperate to get them that even Stuttgart out in Germany has started a GoFundMe. A fan started GoFundMe for 900 million euros just to be able to fund Lionel Messi's potential contract with the team. But let's, if that entire country brings Messi there, good for them. If a GoFundMe can get a player of his quality, good for them. Uh, Messi's done everything he can for Barcelona. He's brought them success and the fame. Yes, he. You know, long, I made a long answer, uh, very dragged out. Yes, he has every right to be able to leave Barcelona. There are two very simple reasons on top of everything you've said. Number one, eight to two. Do I have to say any more about that? Eight to two. When you lose eight to two and you're not the reason for that, yikes. Number two, think about this. Barcelona in the last few years has added Felipe Coutinho – Usmane Dembele, and Antoine Griezmann. You want to know how much they got them for? Felipe Coutinho, 105 million euros. Usmane Dembele, 105 million euros. Antoine Griezmann, 120 million euros. Are you serious, Barcelona? This is what you do to surround yourself with possibly the greatest player of all time? Coutinho was a disaster for Barcelona. They sell him out on loan to Bayern, and then he wins the Champions League for Bayern Munich. Usmane Dembele, the guy cannot stay healthy. Plain and simple, he cannot stay healthy. What a waste of 100 million euros. Antoine Griezmann, what on earth were they thinking signing him? What were they thinking? He doesn't fit with the attack at all. He was much better at Atletico Madrid. He shouldn't have left Atletico. He is basically carried by France's incredible team when he won the World Cup. All he really did was score on a, on a free kick that Uruguay goalkeeper Fernando Muzalera could not catch, and he scored on PKs. Great job. He doesn't fit with Barcelona whatsoever. Oh, yeah, they bought him for 120 million euros. So let me just make sure I, I have this calculations correct because I'm no math major. 105 million euros. 105 million euros and 120 million euros. So 105 plus 105, that is 210 plus 120. Oh no, that is 330 million euros wasted on what? 10 
20 goals combined in the last few years. That's it. That, that, that's all they have to show for it. 10, 20 goals. It's terrible. Barcelona is, is heading to what Arsenal has been the last few years. And I can't believe I am saying this sentence. No one cares to play for Barcelona anymore. There's no passion on this team. There's no urgency. There's no hunger. And now, if Messi leaves, there's not going to be a star anymore. Arsenal was sixth, seventh place in the Premier League the last few years. Why? Didn't have a star, didn't have any passion, didn't have any drive. They coasted on their laurels. Barcelona is heading toward that same path. Now, Barcelona fans, after years of laughing at us, you now get to experience what Arsenal fans have to go through. Until recently, Arsenal's looking up. But yeah. Always comes back to Arsenal, Sean. Always comes back to Arsenal. But so as we know, Messi ha- has been in talks recently. The biggest uh, speculation is where is he going to go? Uh, say someone's willing to pay the 750 million euro release clause. Uh, what's the big, where's he going? What's the biggest prediction right now, Sean, as to where is he heading? And what do you see as Messi's future going on uh, continuing? I don't think there's any doubt at this point that he is wanting to go to Manchester City. He has outright said it. He has called Pep Guardiola, his former manager, who he won two Champions Leagues with in three years from 2009 to 2011. He wants to go to Manchester City because he loves their style of football. Here's the problem, though. Yes, 700 million euro release clause. That is absolutely asinine. That's worth more than most clubs in the world. That is absolutely absurd. He's he's going if he he's either going to go to Man City or he's staying at Barcelona. It's one of the two. No other club can really afford that. Yes, PSG maybe, but I don't think Messi would necessarily want to go there just because when you have Mbappe, Neymar, like Messi, really is not going to have the chance to shine like he would at Man City. Also, Man. PSG is not run as well as Man City is. Even PSG just coasted the Champions League final because of Mbappe and Neymar. And as far as Man City, don't do it. Just don't do it. Plain and simple. Yes, they could probably afford 700 million euros, but here's the problem. Your defense and your midfield is what is concerning, not your front line. You don't need a front line. You have Jesus. You have the youngster Phil Foden. You have Sterling. You have Mares. You have Bernardo Silva. You don't need another winger. You don't need another attacker. You need to bolster your defense. They did sign Nathan Ake from Bournemouth, which will help the defense a little bit. But you don't need Messi. You lost to Lyon because your midfield and defense couldn't have a breakaway goal from Lyon to save your life. They had two of them on you, which was terrible. Man City doing it would just be a waste. You're not going to get it. You're not really going to get any better by signing Messi. I know that sounds preposterous to say, but Man City already has a lethal front line. Now, if you were to sign like Virgil van Dijk for 300 million euros, okay, I wouldn't understand that. But Messi? No. How much greater is he than Sterling right now? Sterling is a great, yes, he is addicted to missing wide open nets. I get that. But at the same time, 
Messi can only do so much. Soccer is one of, if not the most team-oriented sports in the entire world, which is why it's called the beautiful game. Messi really is not going to make Man City that much better. He's really not. Man City shouldn't do it. But they're the only club that has a great chance to because Messi only wants to go there. Yeah, and I know you say he shouldn't do it, but he's going to. Uh, he, he wants out of Barcelona. There's nothing, there's nothing stopping him at this point except for that release clause. And the only way from what I've read about it so far that he can get around it is if he stays on his contract for the next year but doesn't ever participate in practice or just doesn't play for the team. So we might see uh, Lionel Messi pull a Gareth Bale and maybe go play a little golf, might take him for a new activity. Who knows? Uh, but he's going to go to City, and you brought it up. Yes, they have Bernardo Silva. Yes, they have Raheem Sterling. They've got Gabriel Jesus. But the, you really don't think they would be willing to sell those players to go grab Lionel Messi. I definitely think that's a, that's a trade that could potentially happen. Barcelona would absolutely win out that deal, especially giving, out, uh, giving away players of that youth and that quality. Lionel Messi is still ahead of Raheem Sterling. However, pace-wise, he definitely doesn't have the same ability. And you, the biggest issue that we've seen with Lionel Messi over the last few years, his injuries have started to pick up. And that's something you start seeing, obviously, at someone of his age at this point. You start seeing that body start to fail a little bit more. And Man City really can't afford a situation like that. So I really hope he does have success at Manchester City, especially having to adapt to a brand new type of league as well. We're so used to the very forward-heavy, forward-attacking La Liga play. Premier League play is a whole different beast, and we've seen it. We've seen it year in, year out. Manchester City was the highest-scoring team. Guess what? They got second place in the league. Scoring goals doesn't always get you places. So, Lionel Messi, best of luck. I hope you enjoy the Premier League. I'm excited to watch you to see maybe the success that you could have as Cristiano Ronaldo because we already know the comparison is going to be there, especially since he played for their rival, Manchester United. So, we'll see what Lionel Messi can do in Manchester City. Finally, wrapping up Manchester City, Sean, we've noticed another big signing, or not really signing, but a big loan, especially for us American fans, for the men's national team. That has recently come to light. Weston McKinney has been sent over on loan with option to buy to Italian Giants Juventus. For American fans, you are salivating at the opportunity of what the U.S. men's national team could have with just even the next four to eight years, especially since the 2026 World Cup is going to be right here in the U.S. of A. and then Canada and Mexico, of course. So looking at this loan, Sean, what is the what? First off, talking about Weston McKinney, what is he going to get out of this loan over here, and how long do we really think this loan is going to last? And could Juventus potentially pick up a player of his quality? I think Weston McKinney. I think this is a transitional part in his career. When you look at McKinney, he's usually been a defensive midfield, but the more I've watched Weston McKinney, especially in the Bundesliga restart, because I was you know the only sports on at the time. I couldn't help but notice that Weston McKinney was out of position. I think Weston McKinney has the great chance to be a great center back. I don't think he belongs at the center defensive midfield. If you look at Schalke, their attack was absolutely nothing, and Weston McKinney was leading some of it. Weston McKinney can score well on corners. What position usually scores on corners? Center backs. I think that Weston McKinney could be a great center back, and 
What is Italy football known for? Defense, backline. They seem to have great center backs all the time. Heck, the last defender to win the Ballon d'Or was a center back in Fabio Cannavaro, 2006 Ballon d'Or winner as a center back for Italy. Oh, wait, they also won the World Cup that year, too. Italy is a center back factory. And I think that this move to Juventus, the top team in Italy, can help transform him into a good center back. He may not be a consistent starter for Juventus, but they can develop it and give them a depth option at the center back, which in turn would allow Weston McKinney to be a great center back for the U.S. men's national team. U.S. men's national team can use all the help they possibly can. I'm sorry, Aaron Long is your best center back is not going to cut it when you're competing for a World Cup. I'm sorry. Aaron Long is good. Don't get me wrong. But Weston McKinney can be so much better. He's, he's doing great in the Bundesliga. Aaron Long is sometimes great, sometimes not good for the New York Red Bulls. There's a big difference in levels there. This move to Juventus could really transform Weston McKinney into a player that can be a great center back for the U.S. men's national team. You talk about him at center back. Uh, I think while, yes, it's a valuable option that could happen, uh, I do really like him in the the central defensive midfield role. I know you say he's out of position, but look at the players he's going to get to learn from while he's over at Juventus. You're looking at Adrian Rabio, who obviously played for the French national team when they were able to win the World Cup, has players like that to learn from. Also has Sami Khedira, has Aaron Ramsey, has Rodrigo Bentecourt. So many players with so many years of experience to be able to learn from and to be able to really adapt his ability to play could he be a center back? Yes, but he is only 6'1", which for a center back isn't really all that tall, isn't really going to be uh, – isn't super helpful. And at the same time, he's not built very big like a center back as well. You look at center backs like a Virgil van Dijk. You look how big he is. He's a very muscular guy. You look at a guy like Sergio Ramos. These guys are towers, and obviously Weston McKinney is not going to get much taller. He would have to hit the weight room a lot more – and could potentially be like a Dama Triori, but that man's a whole different level of insanity. Weston McKinney has so much opportunity to just kind of sit back and learn. I don't expect him to get a lot of minutes, especially right away. I expect him to maybe see a few minutes, uh, maybe in some Italian tournament styles that they may have, just to at least get his feet under him, have a lot of chance to be able to show off his ability. He was one of the top players over at Schalke. We noticed it game in and game out, he was one of the standout guys. But at the same time, he did have his slip-ups. He was caught in possession. I think he does have a lot of opportunity to prove himself. And I think a giant club like Juventus, who has now won, what, an eight, nine La Liga, or not La Liga, but um, the Italian league. Syria. Syria, ah, thank you. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, Multiple times in a row now. It's not even fair anymore, but this is a great opportunity for him to learn, for him to adapt to his play, and get to be able to play under Cristiano Ronaldo as an American. Uh, I believe he's going to be the first American to actually say he's got to learn from the leadership, potentially, of Cristiano Ronaldo, which is a huge player to learn for. But moving forward, as we talked about, obviously, U.S. Men's International, we, as a na- as a national team are kind of, I almost want to say in our prime here, this is, I, w- I want to say we were almost there with the whole Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, Michael Bradley, Josie Altidore era. 
and we're now transitioning into this new era where I think soccer in the U.S. for the men's team is really about to take off. And so where do you think coming, whether it be 2022 or 2026 or even in the future, are the U.S. men, Sean, really ready to start making a push for a U.S. Cup, U.S. Uh, or World Cup final here? World Cup finals a bit much, but competing in a group stage, possibly getting to the round of 16, I can see it. When you look at the U.S. men's national team, yes, I'm actually about to say some positive things, something I am not used to doing the last couple of years. Christian Pulisic in the project restart for the Premier looked like an absolute superstar. He created his own chances. He facilitated the attack. Something the U.S. men's national team has not done for years. In the Gold Cup last year, I did not see the U.S. do that at all against quality opponents. My one worry, though, about Pulisic on the U.S. men's national team is he could be a lot like Raheem Sterling is for England. An explosive winger who can create his own chances, but because he's surrounded by lesser talent than he is at the club level, that, that his production isn't sound, isn't solid, isn't what you would expect from him. Pulisic has the chance to prove me wrong with that. And if I am wrong, Pulisic will become a great star for the U.S. men's national team and will be instrumental in helping the U.S. just get to the World Cup first in general. And when you look at the rest, we talked about Weston McKinney, but the other one I'm talking about is Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams is what is going to be really key for this, for this, for this team. When you look at Pulisic, he's obviously going to be the guy, regardless if he's Sterling England-esque or not, he's still going to be the guy. But what happens if Pulisic doesn't do well? You need that backup option. You need that facilitator. You need that playmaker. Oh, oh wait, Tyler Adams is that. He is a central attacking midfielder. He's only 21 years old. Oh, by the way, he scored a game-winning goal in the Champions League quarterfinals. That's incredible that Tyler Adams did that. He is a young playmaker. He has a lot of confidence. And if Tyler Adams can really build on his performance in the Champions League this season, it's going to go a long way to helping this U.S. men's national team have a pretty lethal attack. And if West McKinney can develop at the central defensive midfield, as you talked about, or the center back, as I've talked about, the, the squad really is looking solid. Just please, for the love of God, stop. For the love of God, stop building together an MLS all-star team. Stop, please. No more of that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. While the MLS has had some talent, obviously. We're talking about a guy like Landon Donovan, who was able to just carry the U.S. men's national team for years. Obviously, Clint Dempsey, Josie Altidore, Michael Bradley, even Kyle Beckerman has shown his ability. Graham Zusi, Chris Wondolowski, which, I mean, we've talked about him. And, yes, I know you said World Cup final, not quite. You also have to look at back when they did play that game against Belgium. Wondolowski missed a sitter. The U.S. could have advanced. It was possible. Obviously, Julian Green was able to pull one back. It wasn't quite enough, but that ended a 2-1 game. And, yes, it took a heroic effort. But you look at this team moving forward and the amount of talent that is coming out and the amount that we're really about to start seeing produce. You talked about Christian Pulisic, who's only 21 years old. Weston McKinney is only 22, and he's already shown to be a proven star for Schalke. 
Gio Reyna, who's working his way through the ranks at Dortmund right now. He's only 17. Reggie Cannon, who's being looked after by different German and English clubs, only 22. Jordan Morris was said by Stuart, uh, Stuart Holden yesterday to only be second to Carlos Vela being the best player in MLS right now, which I don't think there, there's any sort of misspeak about that after he scored two goals last night in the span of 61 seconds. Paxton Pomacall for FC Dallas, 20 years old. Tyler Adams for, uh, Red, for Red Bulls. You're looking at, he's 21. Josh Sargent also playing in the German League. He's, set, he's 18 now. Timothy Weah, also 18. You have so much talent that is coming up in the ranks. You look by the time 2026 is around, those younger guys are only going to be in their mid-20s. Yes, Jordan Morris by that time will kind of be – he'll be in his low 30s at that point. But this team has a lot of ability and a lot of chance to be able to not only go out and maybe sign with bigger clubs. Like I, like I said, I'm talking about a guy like Tyler Adams. Well, yes, he's doing fine in Germany. I would love to see him get to the Premier League. I'd love to see him be able to get his chance there. Reggie Cannon could potentially be on his way over there. Gio Reyna, I would love to see him get his stride over at Dortmund and maybe get signed to Premier League as well. There's just so much opportunity for these players to really step up and get a lot of leadership. And I think while they're starting to make that transition, I think the U.S. International uh, Committee really has to look at, is Greg Berhalter the right coach right now? I would almost, I've been, I would argue a thousand times no that he's not. And you look almost to Orlando at Oscar Pereja, just what he's been able to do with their youth talent. And you look at what he's been able to do at FC Dallas and at Colorado. He's brought them a lot of success. And I think he would bring a lot of success to the U.S. men's position. So I really hope that Greg Berhalter really isn't on this, isn't the head coach any, or head manager anymore. Just because while he's done what he can, he's really trying to put together that MLS all-star team like you've been talking about. John Cesarda should not be making that pitch anymore. There's no way you should even see him. Omar Gonzalez is way too old to see the field anymore. John Brooks is getting up there in age a little bit. Timmy Chandler, I could potentially get a look, but again, is also getting up there in age. Josie Altidore, his days are numbered as well. It's time to start looking at this youth. We've only got another two years until the next World Cup, barring any other global pandemic. And then in 2026, yes, I know we get the automatic bid into the World Cup, just because we're automatically supposed to be there, it's still time to prove ourselves on our own soil. So there's a lot of opportunity here for the U.S. men's international team. And they really need to take it and run and need to get that international experience where they can go take on the guys like Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, Paolo Dybala, go take on a Kevin De Bruyne. And, you know, all the super big names there out there who have played for these giant clubs. It's time to see what they can do against them because the U.S. men have proven themselves in the past but the talent's only getting better internationally. It's time that we step up and do something about it. Because if our U.S. women can do it, and they've shown now four times that we can be world champions, I think it's time for the men to show, hey, maybe we can go get one ourselves. When it, when it comes to the, the U.S. men's national team, it's just simply put, trust the process. They just got to trust the process. There's a lot of youth on this club. There is a lot of potential there. Got to have the right coach. You, men you mentioned Oscar Pereja. That'd be perfect for them, I think. That that, that sounds sounds better than Berhalter. Berhalter just needs to just just to get the fill in the blank out, plain and simple. And when you look at Pulisic and Tyler Adams, these are two cornerstones of your team going forward. If you invest in the development of these two players, it's really going to go a long way. 
Absolutely. So talking, I mean, obviously we could talk U.S. international soccer all day just because there's so much different things to talk about. But let's skip over the pond as we love to do. We you know, love to transition back over to the U.S. U.S. soil. We are now about a week and a half, two weeks out of the MLS's back tournament where we saw Cinderella stories like FC Cincinnati make their way to the quarterfinals. We saw giants like Atlanta United not even register a single goal throughout the entire tournament. Granted, no Joseph Martinez. Uh, LAFC saw an early exit. And then we saw Portland make out their way to the final, along with the hometown Orlando City make their way to the final. Obviously, Portland winning out. Since then, we've kind of seen a transition back to a normal MLS life. And we, we have a little two, two-parter here, some reaction to post-bubble and then things out in Canada. So let's talk uh, post-Orlando bubble, post-MLS is back first. What's been your reaction so far to the league, Sean, as to has the teams that performed well in the tournament shown that they can continue to perform now? Or is there teams that you're really shocked by that did perform well that are almost going back to their original roles in the league or have exceeded your expectations? Um, I want to talk about the Los Angeles Galaxy. The Los Angeles Galaxy had a terrible, and I mean terrible, MLS is back tournament. They lost all three matches in their group stage, all three. And by the way, the group stage counted for regular season points which means that they lost nine regular season points. But when you look at the Galaxy since they've come back, oh my, they have definitely elevated their game. They defeated LAFC 2 to nothing, which beating LAFC makes any Los Angeles Galaxy fan just so happy, overjoyed with emotion. They followed that by beating their other rival in the San Jose Earthquakes 3-2. to two. You know, Colin, I was looking at the Galaxy lineup and, and seeing, how they, seeing how they played, and I couldn't help but realize something. Chicharito did not play either of their w- matches in their wins over the LAFC and San Jose. You know, it's like if LAFC doesn't have a star, sorry, LA Galaxy doesn't have a star, they seem to be, I don't know, better? What a concept. The LA Galaxy throw too much money at star players that are past their prime. Chicharito was so 2014. Zlatan Ibrahimovic was so eight years ago. Yes, Zlatan is still good, but he's not the player he was eight years ago when he was tearing up League One with PSG and leading them to the Champions League quarterfinals every year. The Galaxy are doing really well without a true star. They scored five goals in the last two matches. You've had Christian Zubac. You've had Christian Pavone, who just looks amazing in the MLS. What a great investment that was. Sebastian Legette has even stepped up. Can't believe I'm saying that, but he has. The Galaxy look amazing without a star. Maybe they should keep doing this. You know, maybe build a better all-around club. Hmm. Interesting concepts here. Interesting concepts, to say the least. Uh, and you, you talk about the Galaxy and their success that they've had, but we also – there's plenty of other teams to talk about. Cinderella story, you know, Cincinnati, who, like I said, made it to the quarterfinals and actually only lost on penalty kicks to Portland. 
uh, really shown themselves to be an interesting team moving forward, especially because this has been a bottom of the table, even last place team out East. And yet somehow only find themselves one spot below the playoff line as of right now. So this is a team on the turn on the up. Uh, another team that is truly shocking to see play so poorly right now is San Jose. We look at a team that was an offensive powerhouse in this, in the MLS's back tournament. And I know we're staying in California here, but there's just so much to talk about. San Jose showed themselves to be an offensive powerhouse winning some games five, two, showing themselves to just continue to attack, have found themselves through uh, Vaco, through Erickson, obviously Chris Rondolowski continuing to find the net. Plenty of firepower to be had on that team. And yet now they still find themselves below a playoff line and losing to the Galaxy like you brought up. Granted, yes, they did score twice, but they still couldn't get the job done, and that's for poor defense, With San Jose has never been an outstanding defensive team. And then we look to LAFC, who was the number one team last year in goals allowed with only 1.08 goals allowed against them last season. They're well above that. They've already added an additional almost goal and a, or goal and a half to that. They're almost at 2.5 goals allowed right now per game, which is now almost the worst. And granted, this is the difference between having Carlos Vela on the field and Eduardo Tuesta against not having them on the pitch, just because Carlos Vela means that much to that team. Latif Blessing can do all he wants, Diego Rossi can do, but also you also just lost Diamande as well. You gave him up. You don't have that same attacking threat up there anymore. And Mark Anthony Kay has kind of seemed to find himself in the shadows a little bit. Carlos Vela, the only reason that the defense of LA Galaxy looks so good is originally they had Walker Zimmerman back there, who is now over at Nashville showing that he's a defensive force. You don't really have that same defensive threat back there. And the only reason LAFC would beat you is because not because of their defense, but because their midfield and their attacking threats were so good at keeping the ball in your defensive half that you couldn't get the ball on their side that's why their defense looked so good was because you never had the chance to get onto the ball if you look at their possession stats since their inception into the league they are leaps and bounds ahead of where they've been almost top five top ten every season so far so it's not shocking I've even mentioned it multiple times that the defense isn't great and then let's look at the galaxy I'll continue to talk about them I wrote an article Sean before uh you know I before the league went into the shutdown about the Chicharito signing on the Rich Report, a colleague of ours, about why the Chicharito signing wasn't great. Look what's happened so far. He scored his first goal in the tournament. Where's he been since? He didn't score in the first two games that he played with them earlier in the season. He's been lackluster. You talked about him being so 2014. He was a super sub for Mexico. Remember, that's what he was known for. Great, you're a super sub. Coming off the bench, you were fantastic. LA Galaxy has been spoiled by having wonderful attackers through the years. John C. Zardes through his early years with the Galaxy was great. Robbie Keane comes to mind. Obviously, David Beckham, not a forward, but a great scorer. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, plenty of great talent there. But now you try and bring in the same tactic that you've used year in, year, year in and year out of bringing in a star striker to kind of remove those woes away. Well, guess what? Your star striker is not even in the game, and you're winning once again. So maybe the Galaxy are going to start changing their mind, mindset a little bit of, hey, you know, maybe team soccer is not a bad idea here. Plenty of that to talk about, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. An another, another club I want to talk about is FC Dallas. FC Dallas did not participate in the MLS's back tournament due to 
their almost their entire club getting infected by COVID-19. So after the MLS's back tournament, they actually did some really weird things. They actually had to play makeup games against Nashville SC, the other team that got infected due to COVID. Dallas has had four games since the MLS Spectrum and ended. They've given up two goals. That's it, two goals. They scored three goals against a Minnesota United defense. Yes, they don't have Vita Minone from last year. Tyler Miller is out for the season, big sad. But FC Dallas broke through and scored three goals. And when you have Minnesota, they're just decimated at goalkeeper. FC Dallas really has become the new, what Minnesota should be. I, Minnesota, I feel like, is going to be in the lower part of the playoffs just due to their lack of a great goalkeeper that they had last year in the start of this season. FC Dallas is now that new team. They're solid at the midfield. They're solid at the back line. Yes, they still don't have that true number nine, which you talked about in your article about FC Dallas. But this team is just great all around. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, Paxton Pomical. Phenomenal young talent at the midfield. Phenomenal. When you, and FC Dallas is really a, a club that can give teams problems. You know all that too well. Last year with the Sounders, they took in the extra time in what was probably the most insane game of the MLS postseason last year. Dallas is legit, and in the four games they played since the MLS back tournament ended, it really proves that scoring three goals on Minnesota is quite impressive, to be honest, even with their goalkeeper situation. They're really a team to watch out for, I think. You talk about them being, you know, a team to watch out for. I don't, I don't see that yet. I think give them another season, mostly because, yes, we, we didn't get them in the MLS's back tournament. So they got a little bit more rest time. Uh, they had the chance to kind of figure out their chemistry. Obviously, they had to rest a little bit more and had to distance themselves so team practice wasn't a thing. So they're kind of a team that, had only, even after the restart, had to restart again, which is not an ideal situation. But even before the restart, they beat Philadelphia 2-0 and then drew with Montreal. So, you know, you go out and you beat – an Eastern powerhouse that Philadelphia has proven themselves to be, especially after this last weekend winning 4-1. And then drawing with Montreal, who not as big of, not as big of a team in the East, especially uh, since they began in the league just a few, five, six years ago. But the chemistry is finally starting to be developed. We're starting to, I think, finally get a real feel for what the starting 11 wants to be. And then, uh, I, we, you know, I mentioned Philadelphia. Their former player, Fafa Pico, who is now over with FC Dallas, had an absolute standout performance uh, last night and really played well, allowed himself to find the space that was needed to let his goal scorers find the back of the net. And there's just so much opportunity for this team to be able to go out and expand themselves and to be greater. Like I said, I think this is going to be kind of a roller coaster team, especially since they're kind of doing this divisional play. You see the different teams are going to have to play, especially you know, a team like Houston, who we saw put up five goals earlier in the tournament and then now find themselves well below the playoff line and can't even seem to buy a goal in the back of the net. This is also a team that we talk about not having a true number nine. Yes, they scored three goals, but they still kind of it took an absolute stunner from Hassani Dotson to be able to find the net. But I still think this defense 
needs to sure themselves up a little bit. It was a little lackluster from them to get on that recovery on Dodson. Yes, it was still a great goal. I'm not taking anything away from it. I think this also has to do with the fact that they weren't able to play in that MLS's back tournament, being able to develop that chemistry that they truly need. So I think continuing the rest of the season, if they can continue getting that win against Nashville, because their, their first game against Nashville was a 1-0 loss, which isn't great. And then they drew. So I'm curious to see if we get another game between the two, which we will get later of how that pans out. Because Nashville is starting to prove themselves a little bit more, especially against a team like Dallas, who's been able to establish themselves in this league being one of the originals out here. So let's see what they can do. Before we talk Seattle, though, Sean, I want to kind of talk an issue out east slash to our neighbors up in the north. As we know, the Canada government has prevented any sort of travel between the United States and Canada and vice versa. Canadians aren't able to come out here. So what the MLS has done is almost created uh, their own version of a Canada division, I guess you could call it, between Vancouver, Whitecaps, Montreal Impact, and Toronto FC. We've seen Toronto, obviously, in multiple MLS Cup finals now. Montreal yet to get there, and Vancouver still yet to be determined. The biggest issue that I'm having here is I want to talk about Toronto mostly, focusing on them. Are they really – we know they're them to be a great team, but are they really the best team out east? They're currently the number one team out in the east with 18 points, and they're five, five wins with no losses and three ties. But in your opinion, Sean, are they really the best team out east, and is the Eastern Conference playoffs going to be a little bit skewed this season? The Toronto – Toronto has benefited largely from this Canada – weirdness. Montreal is as mediocre of a team in the MLS as you can possibly find. I challenge anybody to, to, to tell me a more mediocre team than Montreal Impact. And Vancouver is one of the worst teams in the Western Conference. They finished last place last year. So Toronto is only able to play those two clubs right now. Of course that's going to skew their numbers. They're going to be the top seed because they can only play them right now as long as the Canadian government keeps the clubs in Canada. I think the best team in the Eastern Conference, and I said this last year, and I'm going to say it again, is still NYCFC. They're, they're the best club, in my opinion. They have an insane attack. Their midfield is lethal, and they have a solid enough backline to get the job done. I think Philadelphia is a bit overrated. I, they, have not, they have not proven themselves yet that the loss to Portland really was telling from what I saw. So Philadelphia, I wouldn't consider them elite just yet, but I would say NYCFC is the best club. I would say Columbus, a very solid all-around team, will put Columbus above Philadelphia. And then, and then to go along with that, I would also say that, that, the, that another club in contention in the Eastern Conference is still Toronto, though, because they were in the MLS Cup Finals last year. They got wrecked by the Sounders, but they were in it for a reason. There are, they are contenders, despite their soft schedule. I don't think they're the best club, but I still think I'll put them, I'll put them second behind NYCFC. Sean, you've never been more wrong about anything in your entire life. Philadelphia is absolutely the best team out East, and it's not even close. Just because, listen, we just had the Hell is Back derby between 
Columbus Crew and FC Cincinnati. Like I said, Cincinnati has been a bottom of the tier uh, team since they since they've come into the league. Guess what? Your Columbus Crew that you said is so great couldn't even put a goal past them. And yes, that's a team that's being led by Giancy Zardes. You look at what Casper Jubelko was able to do, Sergio Santos, Brendan Arison, a youngster who's being able to prove himself in the league. This, this is a stacked team, especially obviously having Andre Blake in goal for them. You've never been more wrong about anything. I'm just kidding. You've probably been more wrong about things. but <laughs> I just need them to actually prove something first because they haven't. They'll, they'll prove themselves. They'll be just fine. But Toronto, we mentioned them. Uh, this is more what this is about, barring anything about Philadelphia. NYCFC, yes, they're a good team, not as good as Philadelphia. Toronto, though, we talk about them playing in Canada. The mediocrity out in Canada is ridiculous. Toronto, you got to remember, this is a team that five, six years ago was almost in Vancouver's shoes. They found themselves at the bottom of the table almost every year. They were a relatively new team, but now have played since 2008, I want to say. And they were the only Canadian team for the longest time until the Whitecaps came in. And so being able to see what Toronto has done to be able to give themselves this turnaround, they're a top four team. That's, that's a given. But the reason why I have a hard time saying that they're the best team is they were convincingly eliminated by NYCFC, a team you so favor, three to one. It wasn't even close. But then you look at what they're doing to the teams out in, the, out in Canada. Montreal, obviously, is going to be a team who – is still looking to prove themselves. I still think they've got a player or two to bring into their roster. I don't know quite who yet, but just a player or two to really bring in to make a difference for this team. They're getting draws against Toronto, but they're not scoring. That's the biggest issue here. Toronto's finding the back of the net, and obviously they have Pasuela who's able to do that. And then they've had the new Piotti come in, uh, who's been able to find the net plenty of times for them. And so... Plenty of issue out in Canada. I call it my Canadian conundrum. I know. Alliteration is beautiful. Toronto is going to be the best team in Canada. Yes, are they the best team out east? No, but they're in the top four. Transitioning over to my team, though. Yes, it's well known that it's my team. As I pan my video camera over to my 2016 MLS Cup champion flag, Seattle. Let's wrap up with them. They were lackluster uh, in the MLS's back tournament, to say the least. They needed a win in, against Vancouver, which they got 3-0 with Raul Rui Diaz being able to find the net. And uh, were later stomped out by LAFC 4-1. But since their return, Sean, what have you seen out of Seattle that has really made the difference here coming out of that Orlando bubble and coming in, back into MLS regular season play? Going back to the simple concept of team ball, oh my gosh, the Sounders actually have a rhythm. They have chemistry. They have dangerous attackers. They have players who can score. They don't just rely on their attackers. Whoa! What a concept. There's a reason why last year I picked Seattle to win the MLS's Cup, MLS Cup Finals, and I was right. I was right on the money. The Sounders are the best club in the MLS I don't care about LAFC. They mean nothing to me. They haven't proven deadly squat. Nothing. Seattle Sounders are the best club in the MLS. I know that just that is music to your ears to hear that sentence. It's still true. Their attack is as lethal as any club in the MLS. Their defense is getting better. 
Their midfield is getting better. Who cares about the MLS's back tournament and how they were lackluster? What matters is the regular season and the postseason, and Seattle excels in the biggest moments. Their performance against LAFC, especially from Jordan Morris, just shows how explosive this team is. The Sounders are the best club. They proved it last night by beating LAFC 3-1. to why, why do people continue to say Seattle isn't? Accept it. It's fact. They're the best club. They're the, they're the gold standard of the MLS right now. Plain and simple. Nothing much more to say than that. I mean, you, you said it yourself. They're the best team. They're, they're absolutely the best team in Major League Soccer right now. And especially, it's because of this divisional style play. The West is hands down going to be the toughest place to play. You're looking at teams like the Galaxy, LAFC, San Jose, who originally a team who was fighting for playoff contention is still a quality team and is only getting better, especially with their signs they've made over the last few years and Matias Almeida being able to take over at that head coaching position. And then obviously between the Portland and Seattle rivalry, you're, t- you're talking about five teams that really have a chance to make a difference. And then you throw in Salt Lake, who, while defensively aren't the greatest, have shown a lot of attacking threat, especially through Sam Johnson and Demir Krylock, who were able to rescue a 4-4 draw um, and just really grind out results. And this is a team, this is a Western side, which we've seen year in and year out. You see all those teams I just listed, five out of those six have made the playoffs almost five, six years consecutively. Obviously, Seattle having the longest streak of that. But since this return, they went to Portland, Sean, and shut them out 3-0. They took on LAFC, and against the run of play in the first half, Raul Rui Diaz scored an absolute goal of the week candidate and goal of the potentially even goal of the year candidate. Um, and then later, Jordan Moore scores two goals in 61 seconds. Absolutely ridiculous. And then let in a quick counterattacking goal, which is LAFC to a T. Uh, 3-1 was the final goal of that, but they've let in one goal in the last six games. And you notice Javier Arriaga sitting the bench, Shane O'Neill taking his place, and Yarmir Andrade Gomez filling in that spot as well. So that center back pairing is really getting solidified. Uh, Jovan Jones, I think, being at that left back position. Yes, Brad Smith was still better. I would love if we still had him. Brad Smith, no longer a thing. However, he did let his contract run out with Bournemouth. I don't expect him to come back. But Jovan Jones has experience with this club. He did have to take over that left midfielder role every now and then when Victor Rodriguez was out injured. But now Jordan Morris has found a lot of comfort on that left midfield role. And we saw the demolition that he's done to LAFC and the Portland Timbers. Like I said earlier in our show today, he's only the second best player behind Carlos Vela. And it's getting a little bit closer, especially with that injury to Vela that Jordan Morris could potentially be the player of the year this season. He could be MVP. Could that, is that too far-fetched to say? Not even close. Raul Rui Diaz is finding the back of the net. This, he's a streaky scorer. We saw him go games last season where he couldn't find the back of the net. And I almost got really frustrated and I got really critical with his performances, mostly because he would try almost too hard to find the net, but it's because he can do things like what he did last night. So you understand his frustrations, but then he pulls out pulls that out of the bag like it's nothing. We're seeing Nico Lodero and Jao Paulo be able to get next to each other and just 
cause attacking threats. That ball that Jao Paulo played at Morris on his second goal was just an absolute peach. And you can't play a ball any better. Seattle, congratulations to them for being the best team. Yes, I know Kansas City is number one right now out west. Uh, I don't expect that to last much longer. Let's see. There's only one team that Seattle hasn't played yet, uh, or two so far, and that's obviously the Galaxy because of the player walkout, which all credit to them, uh, and then San Jose, who we need to see them play post-restart. We're about to see them take on Salt Lake. There's going to be a lot of fun out west to be had, to say the least. Quick note, who LAFC, they're all about the counterattack and they're all about the front line. Kind of like the, the MLS version of Man City. Hmm. It's almost there, – there could be some correlation there. And before uh, – I know we got to wrap this up here. Just There's a little uh, contract thing, Sean, that I don't know if you've read, but there could be some truth to it. So say Leo Messi, going back to the Messi topic, uh, I meant to add this in earlier. So say he does sign. Uh, Man City is looking to sign him for maybe about a three-year contract. At that point, he'd be, I think, 36, I want to say. After that, do you know who Man City is uh, tied to over here in Major League Soccer? NYCFC. They're the same ownership group over here. There is a, a potential clause in his contract that after his three years at Man City are up, we could see Major League Soccer Messi over in NYCFC blue. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it could happen, but it, I'm Lloyd Christmasing from Dumb and Dumber this, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> That would be incredible. Get me to an NYCFC game immediately if that happens. Absolutely. All right. That is going to wrap it up for Blinded by Sports on the Candy Clark Podcast. It's the first of three segments on this first episode of the Candy Clark Podcast on KJAC, Spotify, and KLJX, LP, Flagstaff. I was your host, the Candy Clark himself, Colin. Thanks for joining. Glad to be back on KJAC. Absolutely. Be sure, to, be sure to check us out at thecandyclark.com. Stay tuned for segment two, which will be recorded tomorrow, Tuesday, with Johnny Crane for Ahead of the Count. I am your host, Z Candy Clark himself, Sean Clark. See you in the next segment. Welcome, welcome to segment two of the first episode of the Candy Clark podcast on KJAX Spotify. This is Ahead of the Count on the Candid Clark Podcast. I am your host, the Candid Clark himself, Sean Clark. I am joined by my great co-host, Johnny Crane out in Montrose, Colorado. Johnny, how are we doing? You see, I was doing okay, and then you did your KJAX intro, and that just made me think of the show we had last semester in the spring before COVID halted everything, okay? Thanks for making me feel sad going into this podcast, Sean. I can always count on you for that, okay? Anyway, nostalgia aside, let's get into this. Trade deadline came and went in the Major League Baseball. A lot of trades happened, especially for the San Diego Padres. Some trades didn't happen, which I will touch on. But first, let's turn it over to our baseball expert, Johnny Crane, what stood out to you in this trade deadline? Look, if we're going to talk about the trade deadline, we have to talk about the Padres. 
Everybody says I gush about the Padres too much, but they are worth gushing over. Let me t- let me just glimpse over what they traded for. They did not make one deal. They did not make two deals. They made six different deals. Let's just go down the list of who they got, okay? They got Trevor Rosenthal, Mitch Moreland, Jason Castro, Austin Nola, Mike Clevenger, and Taylor Williams, among other players, in six different deals. And when you look at all these moves before going into what the San Diego Padres gave up, all these moves helped strengthen the roster they have at the major league level currently. Trevor Rosenthal helps cover the bullpen that has had some issues with Kirby Yates and Drew Pomeranz having an injury. Mitch Moreland is a power bat in the lineup and deepens the bench. Jason Castro and Austin Noller are good catchers that not only are good defensively, but can give you some pop offensively. And of course, then you have Mike Clevenger, who is potentially an ace right now. And even when you take out the COVID-19 protocol controversy that he had going out and partying, He's a great pitcher, and he's a veteran pitcher that you can put in front of Chris Paddock and Mackenzie Gore in the future. He's under contract for the next two seasons after the season concludes. And then Taylor Williams is another bullpen piece. So when you look at all these moves, San Diego already had a good team to begin with. They had a great team to begin with. But they helped cover certain weaknesses that could potentially have shown itself in the playoffs such as their bullpen, which they addressed with Rosenthal, such as their bench, which they addressed with Moreland and Castro, and their starting pitching with when they got Clevenger. So I think all these moves strengthened San Diego's roster in its current state. Now let's talk about the players San Diego gave up. Six deals, you would think, at least initially, that they probably gave up one of their elite blue-chip prospects. Not the case. In total, when you exclude a player to be named later, players to be named later, sorry. San Diego gave up 15 players in all six deals combined. 15, okay? Outfielder Oliveris, Luis Torrens, Gerardo Reyes, Hudson Potts, Matt Brash, Cal Quantrill, Josh Naylor, the list goes on and on. But when you pretty much sum up all of these players, none of these players are in the elite category of San Diego's farm system, which is a very deep farm system. Arguably, top three deep in all of baseball. And I've talked with you about it before, Sean. I've talked with other people about it. What did I say at the beginning of the season? If teams are going to distance themselves and make themselves well-known and make themselves a potential playoff contender, they have to have one of two things, overall roster balance or significant roster strength. And I always said from the beginning that San Diego's significant strength was their farm system and their depth. And they used their farm system and their depth to an advantage and got a bunch of players to help their major league roster. But their farm system was so deep, they didn't have to give up any of their top elite prospects. To me, that's a win. Even if San Diego doesn't win the World Series this year, a lot of these moves tell me that San Diego is not already willing to go for it, but they're not willing to be reckless in going for it. They're not going to give up their blue chip prospects for a rental. They tried that in 2015, and we remember how 2015 went. So overall, when you look at what they gave up, yes, they gave up 15 players, but all these players were depth players anyway, and a lot of these players were blocked at the major league level anyway. When Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado were playing well, players are going to be blocked, no matter how good they're playing. So I think they traded from an area of strength, and they significantly increased their roster going into the playoffs, because right now I think Outside of the Los Angeles Dodgers, their division rival, I think the Padres might be one of the National League favorites to represent the National League in the World Series. So I'll 
I'll stop with the gushing over the Padres, but I love their moves and I love the trades they made, even though they gave up a lot of players. San Diego, more like Slam Diego with how many grand slams they've hit this season. You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to focus on on trades that happened. I'm going to focus on a trade that didn't happen because this really irks me. All right. I was thinking about this trade, and I was thinking, okay, what stood out to me? One thing came to mind, one thing only. Obviously, Padres, fantastic. I can't wait to see them in the postseason. They are by far the most amazing team in baseball this season to watch. They've been the best story, and nothing would nothing would be more entertaining than to see them square off with the Dodgers in the postseason. That would be incredible. All right, enough about the Padres, enough about Slam Diego. Let's talk, let's talk about a franchise that is on the wrong end of prestige right now. A franchise that no one has respect for right now. And a franchise that is tumbling off the cliff. And that is the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers are an abomination this season. They were supposed to be a second or maybe third place team last year. They were a good team that was a wildcard contender midseason, and then injuries wrecked their roster. This season, they were supposed to take the next step, be an actual wildcard contender, assuming your, your squad doesn't get wrecked by injuries. Lance Lynn has been a phenomenal pitcher this season. 4-1, 1.93 ERA. You want to know something, Johnny Crane? The Texas Rangers are below the Seattle Mariners in the standings. Yes, the Seattle Mariners are in third place in the AOS. How is this happening? I have no clue. I, I'm even even as a Mariners fan, it, it is unbelievable to say the least. Now, you could chalk this up to Seattle having a lot of good young talent, which they have, and I did write about it in my mid-season report for the Mariners. But the fact that the Rangers, a team with all this talent, and Lance Lynn possibly the American League Cy Young favorite with Shane Bieber, you're telling me that he's 4-1, 1.93 RA, and you're telling me you, you can't even be above the Mariners in the standings right now? Really? Really? And here's the thing, Johnny. I was looking at MLB.com. I was looking at the MLB.com's official rankings of the farm system. You realize that the Texas Rangers have a bottom 10 farm system. What's even worse is that the Rangers do not have a single prospect in the top 50 in Major League Baseball's top 100 prospects. Just, just, just for reference, this, the Mariners have two in the outfield. Just, just for reference, they have two in the outfield. The Texas Rangers needed to deal Lance Lynn and build up their farm system. But you know what? They didn't, they didn't do that. Why? You do realize how many teams could use Lance Lynn right now, considering that with this baseball restart, a lot of pitchers have been wrecked, to say the least. Pitching injuries have been way too high because of, of a lack of spring training to get their arms ready to resist injuries. Do, do you realize how many teams could have used Lance Lynn? Los Angeles Dodgers could have used another start because Wonka Buehler has really struggled this season. Atlanta Braves sorely needed Lance Lynn. And that's just to name a couple teams. There's many others. The fact that the Texas Rangers did not give them up, even if they could have shortchanged it a little bit, prospects is still prospects. 
prospects is so just get one top 50 prospect just one you couldn't have gotten one what happened what happened when you look at major league baseball texas rangers probably have the bleakest future out of any team right now they they have they have an older team their farm system is pretty barren they don't seem to stay healthy this franchise is tumbling off a cliff I mean, as a Mariners fan, I'm more than fine with it. But from an objective and analytical standpoint, this was a foolish move not to trade Lance Lynn for prospects. This is really going to come back to haunt them, not just in the near future, but within a few years when the Mariners, who currently have a loaded farm system, are going to be better than them. Usually, yes, the Rangers, they goofed up. Okay, and they goofed up last season, too. Remember when Mike Minor was really good last season? The Rangers really weren't going anywhere, and they held on to him. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty. no pun intended. I understand trying to go for it this year in a shortened season. They had Corey Kluber and they, that they got in the offseason. They had Mike Minor, and they had Lance Lamb. Pretty good trio to build around, I'd say. But then Corey Kluber got injured. Mike Minor was a shell of his former self. And Lance Lynn was pretty much the odd guy out. He was really good, but you can't really anchor a full rotation on your back with only one starter. At, the, at this halfway point of the season, the Rangers should have traded him. They might not have gotten a top 50 prospect or maybe even a top 100 prospect because if we look at the Mike Clevenger deal, that didn't net a top 100 prospect either. But even still, what you said is factually true. The Rangers' farm system is barren compared to other teams. It's barren to other teams when you look at just the division, let alone the rest of Major League Baseball. So the Rangers had an opportunity to inject some youth into that farm system, and they didn't take it. Because when you look at next season, do you think the Rangers are going to really set themselves apart from, say, the Oakland Athletics or even to the to a lesser extent, the Houston Astros? They're, they're, both of those teams are still going to be in the playoff picture because they have the depth and they had the youth. The Rangers don't have either, in my opinion. And you would think that they would sort of inject that farm system with some youth going into next season, next season where hopefully fans will return, next season where fans will return to a brand new stadium that just opened for the Rangers. But no, they did not. Now look, the Rangers might not have liked any of the offers that Lance Lamb would potentially have gotten them, but at some point, you still have to, you know what, suck it up. It's still depth. It's still youth. And we have neither. And we'll gladly take it. And they didn't take it. Because like you said, there are a lot of teams that could have used Lance Lynn. And there are a lot of teams that were willing to ante up at a reasonable price to get Lance Lynn. Chicago White Sox, the Toronto Blue Jays, just to name a couple teams. And you mentioned a couple others as well with the Atlanta Braves. So Lance Lynn's value was never going to be higher than what it is right now. He's 33 years old. He's having a career year, which you really don't see in a 33-year-old, let alone a 33-year-old starting pitcher. And you decided to hold on to him when the stock was at its highest. Yeah, bad move, Rangers. Bad move. Yeah, hindsight's 2020. We might look back at this and say, oh, man, the Rangers were geniuses holding on to him. But it's hard for me to see, and it's very cloudy for me to see a vision where the Rangers come out ahead in this deal or lack thereof of a deal. You know, as a, as a wise man once said, dark, the dark side clouds everything. Impossible to see the future is. Yeah, 
the, the Rangers have really dabbled into this because that's the only explanation for why they did not make this move. This is see, this is this is what this is what you get for mocking Fernando Tati. That's why I compare him to that's why I use the Yoda quote. You have tapped in the dark side by going after Fernando Tati, probably the most exciting player in all of baseball for absolutely no reason. This is what you deserve. Texas Rangers have gone the dark side without without the cool Sith powers. Simple as that. Moving on from uh, cool Sith powers, uh, let's let's talk about a team that just has no power right now, and that is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Jacksonville Jaguars, they have absolutely imploded the last couple seasons. Let's uh, let's go let's go in the hot tub time machine and go back to 2017, where the Jacksonville Jaguars were. Up 20 to 10 in the AFC Championship game in the fourth quarter at New England Patriots. They were a third and 18 stop away from reaching the Super Bowl and playing Nick Foles with Blake Bortles as their quarterback. They just came off two playoff wins against the Buffalo Bills 10 to 3 and the Pittsburgh Steelers 45 to 42. Yes, that is a real score with the, with Blake Bortles. The Jacksonville Jaguars this week have released Leonard Fournette. They have not won more than six games in a season. And they just traded Yannick Ngakwe to the Minnesota Vikings for a second and fifth round pick conditional, which could go up to a third round pick, depending on how Ngakwe does with the Vikings. Johnny, what are your just thoughts on the overall franchise of the Jaguars in this trade? When you look at this trade, I mean, you look at everything else the Jacksonville Jaguars have done, they completely tore down that team. They are a shell of their former selves when compared to their 2017 counterparts. They're practically the equivalent this year to the Philadelphia 76ers when they tore everything down, to the Houston Astros when they tore everything down, to the Cleveland Browns when they went 0-16. That's the Jacksonville Jaguars. They are rebuilding to the upteenth power. If You can't rebuild anymore because they tore everything down. They ripped up the foundation. They're putting in brand new cement and bulwarks. That's their team right now. Their 2017 squad defense is all gone. Their offense is a shell of its former self. They could get no value for Fournette at all. Head coach Doug Marone told reporters that he tried to get a fifth or a sixth round pick for Fournette, but no one was offering any draft picks at all, so they had to release him. But the thing I really want to touch on is actually the front office and Doug Marone himself. Doug Marone has been the head coach of the Jag Jaguars since 2017, and David Caldwell has been the general manager of the Jaguars since 2013. And usually when you see a team that goes to almost reaching the pinnacle of the NFL and reaching the Super Bowl, so the team that's potentially going to go 0-16 this year, usually you see a regime change. Usually you see the head coach and the general manager get out of there and the new regime comes in and takes over and rebuilds the team in their own vision. But David Caldwell and Doug Marone are actually getting a prime opportunity that not pretty much every other scenario in a rebuilding scenario like this, no other team has given. Doug Marone and David Caldwell have not been fired. They're not resigning. They're staying with the team and they're having an opportunity to rebuild the team again after they already did it once. They're getting a second opportunity to correct themselves and a second opportunity to say, you know what, we can build another winner for the Jaguars. And this can go one of two ways. And this is, where, this is what I'm going to leave it on. 
because usually, like I said, you see a regime change. When you see a teardown at this magnitude, you usually see a regime change, even if it's by default. Even if the head coach and the general manager are good, you usually still see a change in some shape or form. But we haven't seen that. Marone and Caldwell are still with the team. So I'll leave it at this. The owner of the Jaguars, the front office of the Jaguars, fans of the Jaguars, whatever, these two individuals, Caldwell and Marone, they built the team up once, and they're given the opportunity to build it up again. If they're successful and they build up another winner and they potentially make it to the Super Bowl in five or six years, however long it'll take, then they will be labeled geniuses. There will be people writing books about them in 50 years or so, okay? If it fails, look, you can make a case the Jacksonville Jaguars are already the laughing stock of the NFL as is. But if this fails, they're the court jester in court, okay? They're going to be laughed at 15 times more than they are already. So what's going to be the verdict of the Jaguars? Will they be geniuses for doing this, for leaving their head coach and general manager on the team? Or will they be buffoons for leaving the same two people in the scenario where they already tore down the team to begin with after they were subpar after their 2017 year? Johnny Crane with the shots. Laughing stock at the NFL. Laughed at 15 times more than they already have. Love it. All right. I agree with everything you said. Just to put things into perspective, let me, let me, let me take a step back. How did we get here? How did the how did the Jaguars go from okay ten point lead in the AFC Championship game fourth quarter at the Patriots and now we just cut Yannick Ngakwe Lincoln? How did we get here? Well, it's as simple as one decision made in the 2014 NFL Draft. The Jacksonville Jaguars had the third overall pick after another terrible season where Chad Henney and Blaine Gabbert were your quarterbacks. Oh, that was a terrible, terrible franchise. Yes, there were three seasons where the Jaguars were trotting out Chad Henney and Blaine Gabbert. Three years. Those were painful years. Every time NFL Red Zone cut to their offense, I'm just like, oh, no. This is going to be absolutely terrible. All right. They decide, okay, you know what? I'm tired of Chad Henney. I'm tired of Blaine Gabbert. Let's draft Blake Bortles. Okay. Blake Bortles, good quarterback for UCF. Uh, one problem, Blake Bortles does not know how to be accurate in the, in the NFL. Blake Bortles does not know how to be a leader. Blake Bortles does not know the word consistency, even if you spell it out for him. This is the difference between them and the Legion of Boom. The, the Jacksonville Jaguars basically try to copy the Seattle Seahawks Legion of Boom. Let's have a young, tenacious defense that is cheap, but they have an attitude. Oh, yeah, let, let's, let's hire Gus Bradley to be the head coach who's the defensive coordinator of the Seahawks in 2013. Now, the Jaguars built up a great, tenacious defense, just like the Legion of Boom. They were young. They were great. Hashtag Saxonville is what their defense became. Just like the Seahawks of the Legion of Boom, the Jaguars were called Hashtag Saxonville. That literally was their Twitter name after they sacked the Houston Texans 11 times in their 2017 season opener. 
poor Tom Savage. He was sacked almost all 11 times. When you, and when you look at the Seahawks, who is their quarterback, Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson, during the Legion of Boom, was nowhere near the quarterback he is now. But you know what? He was still efficient. He still got the job done. He was still a very good quarterback. The Seahawks had him, and the Jaguars had Blake Bortles. If you're going to have a young, tenacious defense, you need at least a, a somewhat Pro Bowl caliber quarterback to help lead you when your defense needs help. Football's a team game. Defense can't win you championships alone. Offense can't win you championships alone, which is why the fact that the Kansas City Chiefs defense stepped up this past season is biggest reason why they won the Super Bowl, not just because of Patrick Mahomes, like everybody will tell you. When you don't have that quarterback to help get the job done consistently, formula is not going to work. You, you lift on Blake Bortles. Simple as that. That is the biggest reason why the Jaguars do not sit here today as a Super Bowl contender. You know what would have really helped? If they had drafted Teddy Bridgewater instead. They drafted Teddy Bridgewater instead. I know Teddy Bridgewater was a late first-round pick, but if the Jaguars had drafted Teddy Bridgewater in hindsight, could have been a lot better because I think Teddy Bridgewater would have been a good enough quarterback, which is why I think he'll be great in the Panthers, but that's another topic for another time. It's, it, it's, it's a shame what's happened. The, their, their entire core from 2017 is gone. It, they're all gone. They're all gone. Like every single one of them, they're, they're, they're gone. And it's, it's now at the point where the only one that can save this franchise is DJ Chark at wide receiver and draft Trevor Lawrence. It's the only one that can save your franchise now. Get, 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 get Marone and Coldwell out of this. They had their chance. Get, just get them out of there. I, I really wish they were fired last season. The, the Jaguars were 6-10. and 10. They were nothing special. The only reason they were four and four mid-seasons is because they beat some of the worst teams in the NFL. They were nothing special last season. It's terrible. Yeah, it's, oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's pretty much the epitome of the Jaguars. They had a good thing going, and hindsight is twenty twenty yet again. Blake Bortles had some solid games. The problem is he had some terrible games in between all those solid games. One game he'd be 31 for 34 with 300 yards and four touchdowns. The other game he'd be 15 for 38 with four interceptions. It was that bipolar. And if you want to have a championship caliber team, you can't have a bipolar quarterback playing on the field. You have to have a consistent quarterback. And that's what set apart the Seahawks, in your instance, from the Jaguars. They have somebody by the name of Russell Wilson, who's one of the more consistent quarterbacks in the NFL. Jaguars didn't have that. Just went downhill from here. And I'm with you. Doug Marone and David Pablo should have been gone, in my opinion. But they're keeping them. And again, it all rolls back to the same question. Geniuses? or buffoons. I'll leave it at that. Moving on to the Stanley Cup playoffs. We are in the thick of the second round races of the, of the second round playoffs. We've had a lot of action so far. Colorado Avalanche and Dallas Stars have had a better back and forth series. Colorado Avalanche had a 5 nothing first period yesterday. They forced a game six. They're trailing the Stars 3-2. to two. The Tampa Bay Lightning have already advanced the Eastern Conference Finals by finishing off the Boston Bruins. The Vegas Golden Knights are one win away from the Western Conference Finals as they came back and dispatched Vancouver 5-3 in Game 4. Vegas continuing to show that they are the best 
team in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the New York Islanders, who had to play in the qualifiers, are one away away from knocking off the East Eastern Conference's top team in the Philadelphia Flyers, which I saw coming a mile away. Now, Johnny, pick a series and tell me and tell me what's going on, what what stood out, and why is this a particular series that you have kept your eye on? I'll talk about two series. I know you're going to talk about Tampa Bay to a degree, so I'll leave the majority of that to you, but I will sprinkle on them too. I'll start with the Colorado Avalanche and the Dallas Stars. This series has gone back and forth, and even though the Stars are ahead three games to two, both games or both teams, should I say, have shown their strengths to a degree and have had to adapt to the other team's strengths many times during the series already. When we look at the Colorado Avalanche and their two wins that they got, up to this point. Their first win, they out-hit, they out-blocked, they out-checked the Dallas Stars. And that's what gave them the win. The Dallas Stars, surprisingly to me, have been a much faster team and a much more explosive team in the fast break, going from zone to zone than I initially thought. And I'll be the one to hold that over the chin and say, you know what, I was wrong about the Stars. I thought they were a much station-to-station kind of team, kind of like the Nashville Predators, kind of like the Arizona Coyotes, but with a little more zest in offense. But I didn't expect them to be up to par or even surpassing the Colorado Avalanche in speed. Colorado Avalanche are one of the speedier teams in the NHL. And there were times late in the games and some of these games where the Stars were outskating the Avalanche. Their top line, by the way, too, with Nathan McKinnon. That's hard to do. It's very hard to do. And if you're doing that, you're doing something right. In particular, though, when I looked at Game 5, which happened last night, which saw the Colorado Avalanche beat the Stars 6 goals to three. The thing that stood out to me the most, which I'll start on the positive side for the Avalanche, they scored six goals. They scored five goals in the first, what looked to be like 15 minutes of the first period, pretty much. They looked really good. Scary enough, though, they could be even better, because when you look at all of those goals that they scored, none of them were on the power play. The Nilch, zero. None were on the man advantage. And what's their strength? Look, they can score goals to begin with. They have depth all over their lines and all over their blue lines. But if they're doing it on even strength and not the power play, you're telling me Nathan McKinnon, Gabriel Landeskog, Nazem Kadri, Nico Rantanen, power play monsters, did not get a power play goal in this game where they scored not one but six goals? That's scary. That's really good. And that tells me that even though they're on the brink, they can still score. They still have the speed. They still have the puck passing ability and they can still change the game with a snap of a finger. With one pass, they can be ahead. All right, fine. I'll talk about the negative now. And this is the thing that stood out to me in the last period of the game. The, Dow- the Dallas Stars were behind by over three goals, three to four goals they were behind. And I was watching the last five to ten minutes of the game. The Dallas Stars pulled their goaltender, so they were six on five. But you know what it felt like to me? It felt like the Stars were only one goal behind as opposed to three or four. And the thing that stood out to me the most was that Colorado was shooting themselves in the foot time and time again. They are a very physical team, and they're a lot more physical than I thought they would be, but they're almost too reckless of a physical team. Dallas was on the power play six times last night. A bunch of penalties and a bunch of minors the Colorado Avalanche had that they should not have had. And if you're trying to keep yourselves in the series you can't 
have simple mistakes and simple physical mistakes that lead to players being in the penalty box, especially players on the power play like Nazem Kadri, especially players on defense like Ryan Grave. You can't have those players in the, in the penalty box. Not against the Dallas Stars, not against Tyler Sagan, not against that speed that the Dallas Stars have. And if the Colorado Avalanche want to win this series, they have to mitigate those penalties. They have to keep their players on the ice at once. They cannot be at a disadvantage at all. Because if they are, the Dallas Stars are going to use that surprising speed to their advantage, and they're going to win. So that would be the thing I would look out for in that series. Now, you're going to talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I will just say this one thing about the Lightning before you talk about them. Gritty, not flashy. And that's something very interesting about the Lightning, because when you think of the Lightning, Steven Stamkos, Nikita Kucherov, Braden Point, Victor Hedman, Andre Vasilevsky, they have a lot of star power on that team. But arguably enough, in the Stanley Cup playoffs, they haven't used the star power to win games. If anything, they've had to use the opposite. They've had to be very gritty. I mean, look, they had a five-overtime game against the Columbus Blue Jackets. They had a two-overtime game against the Boston Bruins in their game-clenching win last night. And when you look at all these wins, they're getting production from players that are good players, but they're not star players. Andre Palat has had four straight games with a goal against the Boston Bruins. Four straight games. He was practically their spark plug on offense. Wasn't Nikita Kucherov? It was Andre Palat. And when you look at the grittiness up to the up to the T, to the epitome of it, they're without Steven Stamkos, and Nikita Kucherov had an injury issue last night. So he did not play the last half of the game or so. He was on and off, and they still won. That's not only gritty, it also shows your depth. And if you want to win the Stanley Cup, you have to have both. Look, they already surpassed their Columbus Blue Jacket curse from last season. They took the Columbus Blue Jackets out this season. They're playing with house money now. But they're playing with house money, not with their star power, but with their depth. And I'll leave it at that. Sean? Transitioning into the Tampa Bay Lightning, when you look at the Lightning, this is a potentially insane story that is building. 2018, March, UMBC defeated Virginia, first 16 seed to beat a one seed. We all know the story. But then a year later, Virginia, they were trailing by 16 points against another 16 seed in Gardner and Webb out of the Big South Conference. Gardner and Webb, yes. Shout out to Gardner and Webb on this podcast. Virginia... Everyone watching, like, oh, my, Virginia is about to blow it again. Oh, my goodness. It is happening. Virginia is going to lose again with 16 seed as a one seed. This is going to be amazing. Oh, wait. Virginia came back and absolutely dominated the rest of the game. Oh, okay. And Virginia does not have an easy road after that. They have a four-point win over Oregon in the Sweet 16. They have a lead eight win over Purdue where they literally had to – score a buzzer beater to send it into overtime, and then they barely won an overtime over Purdue. They needed a late foul to beat Auburn in the Final Four, and then they needed overtime to beat Texas Tech in the National Championship game. It was a very hard roll, but Virginia got the ultimate redemption. Let's look at the Tampa Lightning. Last year, about a, a few weeks after Virginia's win, the Tampa Lightning were the laughingstocks of the NHL as they were swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets, a team that had never won a playoff series in franchise history ever. 
and they swept them, and the Lightning were the President's Trophy winner. Absolutely embarrassing. And this includes a 3-0 choke in Game 1, where they had a 3-0 lead, and they lost. Tampa Bay's got back to the playoffs. All right. Tampa Bay. Oh, wait. They're in a five-overtime game against the Columbus. Oh, it's happening again. The Lightning are going to choke against Columbus. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. The Lightning are going to continue to be the laughing stocks of the NHL. Oh, they, they won game one. Oh, but the Lightning are going to choke this time because they lost game two. Oh, wait. You're going to tell me that they won the last three games, including another overtime? Oh. So they overcame that, just like Virginia overcame Gardner and Webb. Now, against Boston. Boston eliminated Tampa Bay in 2018. The, the Boston Bruins, they have the perfection line, which you wrote an insanely in-depth article about the perfection line for the Rich Report by the numbers. Oh, wait, you're, you're, you're telling me that the, that, that the Lightning won two overtime games, including a double overtime? Wow, that was certainly close. The Tampa Bay Lightning, yes, they did annihilate the Bruins 7-1 in a game, but it still hasn't been easy. They had to win two overtime games over the Bruins. They did lose. They did, they did lose one of their games. It wasn't easy. This is looking more and more like Tampa Bay is about to have their own redemption story all of Virginia. Even when Columbus beat Tampa last year, they were compared to Virginia losing to UMBC. You know, my biggest, my biggest thing in sports is all about the overall narratives. And this overall narrative is, is the biggest talking point, I think, of the Stanley Cup playoffs. If Tampa Bay can pull this off, if they can win the Stanley Cup finals, it'll shed years of choking. Because you got to keep in mind, last year was not the first time they choked. 2015, they lost in the Stanley Cup Finals to the Blackhawks. 2016, they blew a 3-2 lead in the Eastern Conference Finals and lost in Game 7 of the Pittsburgh Penguins. You have Columbus last year. You have 2018, where the Lightning lost badly in Game 7 to the Washington Capitals. None of these... None of these look good. They can shed years of choking, just like Virginia did. Virginia lost in lead eights, sweet 16s before that. The comparisons are uncanny. They match. And to see Tampa Bay in the Eastern Conference Finals, this could be the third year in a row that a Stanley Cup champion is a team that shed their choking label. Washington Capitals shed it in 2018, even though they lost the Penguins almost every year in the playoffs. That's not much of an exaggeration, by the way. You had the St. Louis Blues, who were the choking masters. And then they won the Stanley Cup. Could this be the third year in a row that this happens? I am more than excited to find out. I mean, most likely, if they get there, they're going to play Vegas, and good luck beating that juggernaut. Vancouver has played, has played out of their minds, and they can, and they can barely win a game. Let's move on to the final topic, and I'm going to let Johnny really take the lead on this one because I already talked about this on the previous segment with Colin Fuchs on Blinded by Sports, which was our first topic, which was Lionel Messi. Considered possibly the greatest player of all time, at least one of them by everyone's standards. He has been at Barcelona his entire senior career. He was there in the youth academy as well. 
once he left Argentina. He wants out of Barcelona. He wants out. He doesn't want to be there anymore. He has been linked with Manchester City. He has been linked with other clubs, but those don't look very likely. So I already went in depth about this with Colin Fuchs on Blinded by Sports in the previous segment. So, Johnny, I'll just, I'll just let you share your thoughts on this situation. Go for it. Lionel Messi, to start, he failed to attend preseason training. They had to do some COVID testing training before the schedule started. He did not attend that. And to pretty much just sum it up, of Messi's relationship with Barcelona. Like you said, he's been there since his beginning, okay? It's a love story that's gone sour, and now Messi wants a divorce, okay? The problem, though, if you want a divorce, most divorces involve something called money. Money, 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 money. And unfortunately, I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer. We need a lawyer here because apparently there's some, a little bit of a, miscommunication in regard to contract specifics. We need somebody that knows contract law here, Sean, because I don't know it the much, but apparently this is what's going on. Messi believes he has a chance to leave for free this summer. He has a chance to do that. He believes his contract states as such. His team, on the other hand, does not think so. No, no, no. He can't do that. He can't leave for free. He has to pay a fee first. He has, there's a fee. There's a whole process. He can't leave automatically and we not get anything in return. That's not how this works. We've had you since the beginning. No, 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 no. This, this is impossible. Uh-uh. This divorce is not going in a scenario where I don't end up with money. And unfortunately, that's pretty much where we're at right now. Yes, Man City is a great fit for Messi. A pass-heavy team, a shot-heavy team, a speed-heavy team. Perfect for his skill set. And, of course, they have a lot of veterans, and Messi is a veteran at this point of his career. But if Man City or any other team in the Premier League wants Messi, well, they have to go through the logjam and the drama-filled series that is the divorce court of Barcelona and Messi. They're going to have to figure that out first and all the money involved with that before Messi even dreams of going to Man City or Chelsea or any other team he wants to go to. And is Man City willing to wait? Are they willing to wait and potentially pay an exorbitant amount of money to get Messi if the contract states that Messi can't leave for free? Are they willing to risk, or is any other club willing to risk, you know what, we could get him for free. We're going to gamble that. We've spent a lot already. But we're going to take a gamble and say, you know what, Messi is going to come out of divorce court as the winner. Or the gamble could go wrong. Messi comes out of divorce court as the loser, and they have to pay – 100 million euros or however much it's going to be. Again, I'm no lawyer. I don't know what the contract states. I'm not going to pretend to know what the contract states in regard to money that a potential Premier League team will have to owe to Barcelona if Messi opts out and he has he can't leave on the free. That's pretty much where we're at right now. Divorce court is fun. Divorce court always involves money. It always involves money. And Messi and Barcelona, look, it was a great love story at the beginning. It was a youthful love story they met when they were very young. They've seen a lot together. They've been through the thick and thin, but unfortunately the thin is too much to, for Messi to handle. And now Messi wants a change of scenery. And he wants a change of scenery without having to pay a dime. Barcelona says otherwise, and, well, now we have a soap opera on our hands. So is Man City, is Chelsea, is any other team willing to wait out that soap opera? You got me, Chief. It's on you. 
Uh, you just you just have to throw Chelsea out there. Look, I know they're not. Look, I know Chelsea. They're getting Kai. But look, these are the facts. Chelsea's talking about them. I don't see it, but yeah, my fanhood's not not talking. Okay. I know. Now, the what the one thing I'll add is that La Liga said, yeah, you you can't do that. You 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 can't you can't get them on a free transfer. La Liga themselves are like, no 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 no. You're not going to do that. 700 million euros is how much his release clause is. Yeah, good luck paying that. That, that That's really, I'm, that, I'm just going to leave it at that. Good luck paying that. That is going to conclude Ahead of the Count on the Cannon Clark Podcast. It's the second of three segments on this first episode of the Cannon Clark Podcast on KJX Spotify. I was your host, the Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark. Be sure to check us out at thecannonclark.com for content posted every day. Johnny has done some great work for thecannonclark.com. Stay tuned for segment three, where I where it'll just be me, and I will just ramble about whatever's on my mind tomorrow morning when I record. Who, who knows what's on? Who, who knows what's going to be on my mind tomorrow morning? It's, it's going to be. It's going to be an interesting time. But for, for Johnny Crane, thank you for coming. I am your host, John Clark. See you in the next segment. NFL season is a week away. NBA playoffs have been crazy. NHL Stanley Cup playoffs have been crazy. And we are also a week and a half away from the return of the English Premier League. Life is great. Hello and welcome to segment three of this first episode of the Cannon Clark Podcast on KJX Spotify. This is segment three. This is just me, your host, the Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark. And today I am going to be talking about what is going on in the NBA playoffs on top of a couple video game topics, actually. Like I said, this is a segment where I just ramble about whatever is on my mind. I don't particularly stick to one topic because I am the Kena Clark and there is a lot of different segments and categories on my website, thekenaclark.com. It really allows me to talk about whatever. So for this podcast, we're going to talk about the NBA playoffs and we're going to talk about video games. Those are going to be the two segments we're going to talk about on this show today. As we conclude this first episode of the Cannon Clark Podcast on KJAX Spotify. Before we begin, please sure to check out the CannonClark.com and subscribe and check out the content. Any views are appreciated. Also, check out the Cannon Clark Podcast on Spotify. We're now on Spotify. Let's get into this. The Denver Nuggets are my favorite team in the NBA. And my gosh, these last two weeks have been excruciating to deal with. The Denver Nuggets last year suffered a painful loss as in Game 7 of the Western Conference semifinals against their division rivals, the Portland Trailblazers. The Denver Nuggets blew a 3-2 lead, lost Game 6, and in Game 7, at home, on national TV, on ABC, Mike Breen... Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson, the announcers, it was all eyes on Denver. It was at the Pepsi Center. It was, it was a huge game. The Nuggets jumped down to a 17-point lead at home, and it looked like, oh, man, the Denver Nuggets are going to go to the Western Conference Finals. No. 
the Nuggets absolutely fell off a cliff. They shot 2 of 19 from 3. Jamal Murray shot 4 of 18. And CJ McCollum at 37 points, bringing the Portland Timber, sorry, the Portland Trailblazers back from a 17-point deficit, and they are the ones that advanced to the Western Conference Finals, where they got swept by the Golden State Warriors. That loss still lingers. Coming into this postseason, Jamal Murray wanted to make amends for his atrocious Game 7 performance. Jamal Murray wanted to show how great of a player he was. The, the, the Denver Nuggets fell behind 3-1 to one in the series. And I thought to myself, oh no, this is bad. The Denver Nuggets were without Gary Harris for the first five games and are still without Will Barton. Two great perimeter defenders and wingers that are very valuable depth pieces for the team. Donovan Mitchell scored 57 points in Game 1. And he scored 51 in Game 4. The, the Jazz were one game away from eliminating the Denver Nuggets in the first round. It was terrible to watch from a Nuggets fan. Constant defense, defensive prolapses. A lot of wide-open misses. If Jamal Murray doesn't go off in Game 1 where he scored 36 points, the Nuggets would have gotten swept. But because the Nuggets won Game 1, they still had a fighting chance. In Game 5, Jamal Murray shot the lights out, scoring 43 points. And in Game 6, he scored 50. Game 7, it reminded me of Portland so much. Not just because it was, in, it was a Game 7, the third straight for the Nuggets in the postseason. But what transpired in the game, I couldn't help but think of the Portland series last year, especially the Game 7. Murray shot 7 for 21 in Game 7. The Nuggets shot 25.8% from three in the game. They had a 19-point lead, and they blew it. The Jazz and the Nuggets engaged in an ugly and brutal fourth-quarter battle as they exchanged leads, and Nikola Jokic, with about 40 seconds left, hooked in a shot over Rudy Gobert to give the, the Nuggets a 80-78 lead. In the final 15 seconds, was, was, was some of the most nervous seconds of my entire life. The Denver Nuggets stripped the ball away from Donovan Mitchell. Gary Harris made an incredible defensive play to poke the ball away from Donovan Mitchell. Jamal Murray came up with the loose ball and was dribbling down the court. Now, when you're up two with under 10 seconds, you're supposed to dribble it out, force a foul, and you can hit two free throws and go for game over. But Jamal Murray decides to get greedy and try to end the game. He drives right to the rim, passes it to, to Torrey Craig, who misses, giving Utah one last chance. When they missed it, I can't describe the fear I was feeling, knowing that Utah had enough time to go up the court and get a shot off. And that is exactly what happened. Mike Conley, who had 27 points in Game 3, he missed the first two games after he attended the birth of his child. He had a good look at the basket. He attempted the three with Jamal Murray in his face. The two seconds where, that, where Conley attempted the shot and the ball was in the air, it's like, I, it's like I had no feeling in my body, and I can't describe how nervous I was. The only thing I was thinking was the ball going in and trying to process the defeat. 
thank God that didn't come to fruition as the ball clanked off the rim and the Denver Nuggets survived and advanced to the Western Conference semifinals. That was a mouthful saying it just now. This was 20 times as bad watching it live. This was an ugly fourth quarter. The Nuggets were blowing it just like they did against Portland last year. If the Nuggets had lost this series, and especially in the way they did, this would have been a very tough pill to swallow. It would have been a very tough pill to swallow. The difference this year is that, is that the Nuggets have more than two scores. Last year it was just Jokic and Murray. They have other scores this season. They're deeper than they were last year. And because of that, the Nuggets were just able to hold off Donovan Mitchell. Props to Donovan Mitchell. He was phenomenal. And I think he is going to be a superstar for years to come. I can't wait to see what Donovan Mitchell continues to do. But the Nuggets advanced. They will probably lose to the LA Clippers. I am fully aware of that. The Los Angeles Clippers are at another level. They have Kawhi Leonard, in my opinion, the best player in the NBA right now. The Los Angeles Lakers have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. They're also much better than the Nuggets. The Nuggets and the Houston Rockets are Tier 2 teams. The Clippers and Lakers are going to face in the Western Conference Finals. But as a Nuggets fan, I am so thankful that we came back from a 3-1 deficit. Only 11 other only 11 other times has that happened in NBA postseason history. The Nuggets did something historic. They exercised the demons of Portland last year. I don't have to think about that anymore. Yes, they're probably going to lose to the Clippers. But you know what? I am satisfied. All I wanted was the Nuggets to get out of this series, and they did. I hope they can make it competitive against the Clippers, gaining more respect. But even if they get swept... At least the Nuggets made history by coming back from a 3-1 deficit, and Jamal Murray established himself as a franchise cornerstone. The future looks bright in Denver. Thank God they didn't lose the same way twice. Let's move on to the other Western Conference first-round Game 7 matchup. It was between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Houston Rockets. This was one of, if not the most intriguing first-round matchups. You have a bunch of former Clippers facing off against each other. You have Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook, who were traded for one another this offseason, facing off against each other. It was a battle. The Rockets took the first two. Then the Thunder evened up the series. Rockets took Game 5. Thunder took Game 6. Here we are in Game 7. This fourth quarter was just as ugly, if not worse, than the Nuggets taking on the Jazz. Oh, there was so many missed open shots, I can't even keep track. So many times a player had a great look at the basket and they missed. Teams for, Both teams forgot how to shoot. All players forgot how to score. The Houston Rockets had the lead by two. And the final sequence was absolutely disgraceful to basketball. But not totally. Lou Dort, he had 30 points in Game 7. He was phenomenal. He shot the lights out and really showed that he is a player that can play in the NBA and be a starting caliber guard. 
He attempted a shot with 1.1 seconds to give the Thunder a win over the Rockets. But James Harden, known for his bad defense, blocks the shot. And Dort tries to collect the rebound and throw it at Harden so it can ricochet off of him and the Thunder have another chance. Instead, Harden missed it. Harden missed it. And Rockets got and, and Rockets got the ball. Later, the Oklahoma City Thunder inbounded. Shai Gilgis Alexander had Steven Adams open. In the pain, if he just threw a lob pass, Adams would have laid it in and given them the tie and sent it to overtime. But no, Gilgis Alexander missed it. If you want to know more, check out Jay Williams' Twitter. He was the one that pointed out. Phenomenal video. But what I want to touch on with this series is how poor the officiating was. Backcourts were missed. Ticky-tacky fouls were called. Yesterday, combined with the tumultuous ending of the Bucks and Heat, where both teams had ticky-tacky fouls in the final few seconds, putting them at the free-throw line. NBA officiating is soft. And I don't like where NBA officiating has come. Back in the olden days, you could slam somebody to the ground, but if, you, but if it's clean enough and if you get the ball, you're not going to go to the free-throw line. Officials were much more lenient back in the day. It upsets me. Even in the Game 7 between the Thunder and the Rockets, the officials were not lenient. Even in the Nuggets and Jazz, the, the officials were quite lenient, which was great. Let them play. That's why the NFL playoffs are better than the regular season. Because in the NFL playoffs, they usually let ticky-tacky holding calls go. When it's the big games, you need to let plays go as an official. If it's an obvious call, yes, please call it. But if it's ticky-tacky, let it go. This is an entertainment business. This isn't a this isn't a, a law office. This isn't this isn't an accounting office. This is entertainment. I get enforcing rules. But stop calling ticky-tacky fouls. It goes back to the it goes back to Super Bowl forty between the Steelers and Seahawks. The Seahawks were robbed in large part due to very ticky-tacky calls called against the Seahawks, and they lost twenty-one to ten. It was ugly. I hate seeing it in sports. With the Thunder still probably lost, yes. Props to James Harden for blocking Lou Dort. Great play by James Harden. But seeing what I saw last night between the Thunder and the Rockets, I hate it. And I don't ever want to see it again. NBA officials and officials in sports should know better than to call ticky-tacky fouls in the biggest games. It, it really made last night's game unsatisfying. And I'll just quickly say this. The Lakers are going to easily handle the Houston Rockets in a series... I don't even know how watchable it's going to be. Congratulations to the Rockets for advancing, but it just doesn't feel clean. Simple as that. Moving on to the world of video gaming. I have been tampering with video games as of late. What I mean by that is I've been rehashing old classics and starting a new game. 
Madden. NFL is my favorite sport. It, it has been since 2012. And it is the sport that I have watched the longest. From 2007 to 2011, college football was my favorite sport, as I wrote about on my site, The Decline of College Football. I wrote about that. The last eight years, NFL has been my favorite sport. So it is safe to assume that Madden is a franchise that I have have experience with, and this is true. Growing up, I played Madden 06 and Madden 07 on the Nintendo GameCube, and I had so much fun with it. The game played the game played really well. The graphics were amazing for its time, and even still today, they are somewhat playable. The best Madden game is Madden 15 for the Xbox 360. My my freshman year roommate had an Xbox 360, as I did not have my game system my first semester freshman year. He had Madden 15, and we played it all the time. It was it was great. It is the perfect Madden game. While it's more realistic and the graphics are better, it's actually a fun game. I really enjoy it. Passing is fun. If, if you throw a bad pass, you're going to get intercepted. It's just like the way it is in the NFL nowadays. The blockers actually know how to block, unlike the newer Madden games. Receivers actually catch well-thrown passes. They don't drop on the slightest contact like the newest Madden games. It is fun. It is pretty realistic. But not to the sense that it's not fun. This line between realism and entertainment is something that I feel like a lot of modern games struggle with. The reason why previous gen games and even games that go back before that are in many ways still the best games because gaming studios then relied more on entertainment than realism. Yes, they still try to make it reasonable, but the technology wasn't there to make it as real as realistic. Madden 15 was this perfect balance. NBA 2K14, which I played last night with my roommate Cameron Richardson, is great. The problem with modern Madden and 2K games, especially Madden, is it feels too simulated and realistic. It doesn't feel like I my skill is detri- is detrimental to the outcome of the game. Madden, the blockers can't block worth anything. Yes, I get that in the NFL it happens a lot, but it happens too often to enjoy playing offense. Because in Madden, you don't control the blockers. You control the quarterback and whoever has the ball. You don't control the blockers in Madden. Unless you're doing a franchise mode or something. If the blockers cannot block, it is hard to play offense. It is understandable that, yes, you want to buff up the difficulty and have a challenge. But at some point, it, it, it just becomes a grind. Also, if receivers are touched, they usually drop passes. It is terrible. If a player gets an open space, usually they're gone. It is very hard to catch players in open space in, in the newer Madden games. It's terrible. Compare it to Madden 15, or I'll even throw this in, NCAA 13. You can catch players if you have the right speed. The chase actually feels adrenaline and not simulated. Those games are fun. They are pretty realistic, but not super realistic where it feels simulated. 
you actually determine the outcome of the game, just like with 2K games. 2K, you can actually steal the ball if, a, if, a, if your opponent is careless with their dribbling. You can steal passes if they're passing carelessly. You can make contested threes. The problem with modern gaming studios, especially EA with Madden, is that they, they sacrifice creative craziness and fun for realism. I get technology makes games hyper-realistic. I played Final Fantasy VII Remake. That was extremely realistic. But, that, but the game was extremely fun as well. And that is why Madden doesn't work nowadays. That's why 2K doesn't work. FIFA is another exception. I, I disagree with the common opinion that FIFA is not as good nowadays. I think FIFA is better because how fluid the gameplay is. I think FIFA is fantastic. But that is another topic for another time. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Madden 21, I looked it up, has a .3 out of 10 on PlayStation 4 Madden 21 on Metacritic. .3 out of 10. That's really bad. That is really, really bad. It just goes to show that EA needs to, to lose Madden. Because they don't have competition, they're lazy. Yes, they're making it hyper-realistic, but they're not making it fun. Madden's not fun anymore. That's why I always recommend having a previous-gen console so you can play games like Madden 15, NBA 2K14, NCAA 13. Those, that is the holy trinity of sports games for the previous-gen, and, and just in general. Play those three games. You will not be disappointed. And got a few minutes left, but I just want to close with this. Fall Guys. Fall Guys has been an internet sensation the past month, especially on PlayStation 4, where it has been a free game for PlayStation Plus. It is a competition game where you have to navigate your way through obstacle courses and win competitions in a tournament in a tournament style. It goes from like 60 to 40, 40 to 20, 20 to 10, and then 10 to champion, something like that. And I have given it a try because it was the last day of PlayStation free games and I've heard so much about it and I've decided, you know what, I'm going to give this a try. And I'm very thankful I have. It is an extremely frustrating game. You can't really jump very far. Also, the depth perception and the camera angles are not great, but it is fun. It's super easy. You just you go to the main menu, you press play, you join a bunch of other people online, and you just compete. It's extremely simple. It reminds me of Angry Birds, a game that is fun... It's not grand, but it's addicting and it's fun. Fall Guys to me is PlayStation's Angry Birds with competition. It's such a fun game. I highly recommend it. If you're just looking to relax, blow off some steam, have some fun with friends, please play Fall Guys. It is worth your time. It's only 20 bucks now. Now that the free game has expired, it's only 20 bucks. It is worth it. Have fun with friends. Highly recommend. That is going to do it for this first episode of the Canicork podcast on KJX Spotify. This was the first of this was the first of two episodes this week. The next episode will be Nerd Explosion with John Wintrobe and the Locker Room with John Steinmetz. Be sure to be sure to tune in for those, and be sure to check out thecanicork.com for content posted every day. Be sure to check us out on on KJX Spotify. And actual Spotify. 
the Cannon Clark Podcast is a podcast on Spotify, so be sure to check that out. I was your host, the Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark. For Colin Fuchs in the first segment, for Johnny Crane in the second segment, have a great rest of your day. See you in the next episode.